will join me in prayer before we begin for the first attempt at this first verse of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, as you are only too well aware, your word is attacked in various places by the world, but perhaps nowhere as vigorously as right here in Genesis 1, 2, really 1 through 11, but maybe primarily the first couple of chapters. When I was not born again, I shared great objection to what was said here and rejected your word, thinking that science had explained this all satisfactorily with no need to believe in you. I came to realize the truth and came to accept this as sober historical reality. But Lord, there are many in the church today who do not see it this way. There are even many who are born again and who believe all of your word but stumble in the early part of Genesis. And this is a terrible shame because the opening chapters of Genesis are foundational to everything that follows in your truth. So I ask now that you would give me ability to make clear as I can the text, the issues related to the text, not only this morning, but as we march on through this foundational part of your truth, which is so important for so many issues which are gravely rejected in your truth and practiced differently in our society today. Therefore, help us to see and to understand and to believe and to champion and to praise you for all of that which is here. In Christ we pray. Amen. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. As we begin the book of Genesis, or really I intend to cover the first 11 chapters, right here at the start, right here in the very first verse, I need to explain something this morning of the proper approach to creation. This will require a goodly part of this opening message. I need to explain this because if we miss this, if we get this that I'm about to explain wrong, then I fear we will not understand and we will forever be trying to explain what is going on here in Genesis and how it then relates to the rest of Scripture and to all of life. And I fear that we will then, if we get this wrong, what I'm about to explain, that we will be explaining it in a way that is outside, not a part of, all that can be known. 
We will be stuck judging Genesis, maybe especially the section as it opens on creation. We will be stuck judging Genesis by something which has nothing to do with it. Oh, it is thought by almost all of humanity that it has much to do with it, but it actually has nothing to do with it. And that will inevitably, if we follow the path that many, I'm talking non-believers, I'm talking in many cases believers. Now the believers don't follow through consistently, but, and that's a good thing, but if we make this mistake, we will be inevitably led to wrong conclusions and a wrong understanding, which will then impact so many other issues. So how to get at this very quickly. Pretty much since Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's the actual full title of his book. So this gives Eric and I and Eddie permission to have long titles. Ever since the, and we always usually refer to it as the Origin of Species, published November 24th, 1859, the creation account in Genesis has been treated as a subject of science. wherein science is seen as the final arbiter of truth. Many Christians have come to believe that one's view of creation, one's view of Genesis 1, Genesis 2 in particular, must be consistent with whatever the current scientific thinking is. If we don't understand Genesis according to the latest scientific thinking, it is widely thought, then we are doomed to a childish, insufficient, backward understanding. We are rubes if we take this seriously as serious history. This sort of thinking is exemplified by many in the Christian church and by all too many of her leaders. And one in particular, sadly, is the case I will refer to Andy Stanley. Perhaps some of you have seen some things online not altogether that long ago, pretty recently. Answers in Genesis commented on this, I thought wisely. Andy Stanley, among many others, has said, and, and many, too many Christians say things very close to this, God is the creator. Evolution is his means or method of creation. Stanley has also said very clearly, when religion and science conflict, now, there are plenty of people who think they, they don't conflict ever. And I'm one of them, if you understand science correctly. 
But when religion and science conflict, says Andy Stanley, if you are honest, he says, you must take, and by religion here he means Bible, Christianity, if you are honest, you must take science over religion. So God's word is not the ultimate authority about origins, about creation. Science is. This is the way most of the world views it. Many today are overtaken by the prideful, and that's what it is, the prideful notion that we today, in all of our modern sophistication, are far more wise and far more knowledgeable than our first forefathers, who were backward, who were primitive, and who, when it came to what they thought about creation, were ridiculously absurd. Anyone who takes Genesis seriously as accurate history, so guilty, it is thought, it is said, fails to realize that our ancient ancestors, who, by the way, sprang from apes or an ape-like ancestor, had a very deficient view of the world which was rooted in myth and legend. The Genesis account is nothing more than a myth. We have lots of creation myths among many peoples of the world. The Genesis account in the Bible is just another one of those. Modern science many think, has superseded such primitive thinking and we can now correct the notions and the worldview of the ancients. And we can see clearly what has actually occurred, what actually did occur long ago. And it is not the way it is laid out in Genesis. Modern man in his hubris, that is his excessive pride, willfully rejects the inerrant word of God, which our forefathers, I want to say to you, I do say to you, wisely accepted and understood properly. And when I say our forefathers, I'm not just talking about America's, I'm talking about all the way back to the patriarchs. Modern thinking to the contrary, it is the denial of God's word that people who make such denial in their own arrogance that is actually not consistent with the evidence of what in fact happened. Prioritizing allegedly scientific evolutionary thought, this means when, for instance, evolutionists hold to an old earth then our view of Genesis needs to be made consistent with billions of years because that's what the science says. 
We must therefore conform what Genesis says to what we know from science, and that is that the world is billions of years old and that living things on the earth have evolved from simple to complex. Those are realities. Those are truths that we must, in our understanding of the Bible, if we're going to take the Bible at all seriously anywhere, we have to conform our understanding of it so that it's consistent with those agreed upon realities. Billions of years and the evolution of all of life. This may require us to alter our understanding of a good many things that the Bible says later on, not just in the beginning. But we must always go with what the science holds to and says, or allegedly says, because science is the bedrock of truth. So if science holds to the evolution of life, then our understanding of Scripture must be made to be consistent with that. Many, even Christians, as a result, have felt that in itself, the biblical account of creation is inadequate. Or there are others who have so stretched what seems to be clearly said here as to make it almost unrecognizable in order to conform to old age and to at least some elements of evolution. This is the key thing that I'm, I'm, I'm addressing right here in the beginning. Those who think we have to view this subject, the creation, in light of what modern science says or has allegedly discovered with regard to origins. So the first thing that I must tell you as we begin is that if that is our approach, we will not be able to get much of great value out of Genesis 1 and 2 at least, if not so much more that follows. And however we come to understand it according to the latest and I'll say it this way again, alleged scientific thinking, our understanding will ever have to change as scientific hypotheses change. This, friends, is the wrong approach. The account of creation and everything else in the Bible comes to us directly from God. It is all his word, and it is the truth. Thus, whatever science may theorize about it, and scientific theories are always changing, you may be aware, for instance, that Big Bang theory among scientists is now being questioned. That used to be just thought absolutely true. Scientific theory is always changing. Whatever current science says when it comes to origins or to creation, God's word is the one, the only, unchanging, absolute, inerrant authority. And we must not read modern theories into the text of Genesis. Rather, Genesis, as the revealed word of Almighty God must ever correct modern 
theories, notions, ideas, which are limited and finite, and which are so very often not really scientific, but rather are so very often self-serving and agenda-driven. And that is foisted upon the biblical text by many. Indeed, now let me be even clearer, as clear as I can be, even if many today consider it foolish. Creation and origins is not actually a subject of science at all. In fact, there is no such thing as the science of creation. There is no scientific way to explain creation. Science has to do with that which can be observed, repeated, tested, and from such observations, theories are posited, and if a particular scientific theory proves consistent enough without contrary data, the theory eventually graduates to the status of scientific law. Creation by its very nature is not observable, not repeatable, not testable. It is not explained by scientific laws. Amen. Now that may strike you as odd. There are a goodly number of creationists who call themselves creation scientists. The only one who was there at creation was God. And his eyewitness account is found in his word. Thus, creation should not be viewed as a subject of science, but rather as a subject of theology. Which theology has to do with a word, logos, word, from God, theos. Theos, logos, theology. If we are to know anything reliable about creation, it comes from God's word. And all modern theories about creation must be consistent, if they're to be held to be accurate, must be consistent with what God's Word tells us. Creation was not a natural event, nor was it a series of natural events. It was a series of supernatural events, which are not subject to scientific analysis or explanation. They are not inherently subject to such analysis or explanation. Creation is not observable, which all true science is based on. Science requires verification by repetition, and creation cannot be repeated and thus in that manner verified. 
Creation had no observers except God himself who did it and he told us what he did in his word. So let's be very clear, this is what counts. Now it's got to be interpreted correctly, but that's not really that hard. Not nearly as hard as many Christians seem to think it must be. Many talk, I'll say this now, about the science of creation. That is, in my opinion, a misuse of language. Now, I'm going to try and explain this to you in simple terms. Creation did not happen by any uniform, predictable, observable, repeatable, fixed, natural laws. It was a series of supernatural, instantaneous, inexplicable miracles. As God said to Job in chapter 38 of Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, nobody was there but me. No one knows but me. Outside the revelation of God's word, human beings have nothing but wild uninformed speculations as to creation and no human being knows what we do know is what God has told us Genesis I submit to you never mentions nor even hints at a process of evolution Oh, there's lots of people who've, who've read that into the text. And as we go through the text, not this morning, but as we go through the text, I will attempt, I think, in simple terms to show you how it's not even hinted at. There are no natural processes in creation. They are all supernatural. Evolution was not the means. It was not a means by which God created you either believe or you reject the record that we have of the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We have some other references. We have one in the Psalms, Psalm 104, and, and other places that refer to the creation, but there is no other clear, historical, detailed explanation of what God did given by God himself than right here. Either way, you either believe this or you don't believe it. Evolution is not the explanation of creation. Now, having said that, of course, living beings, plants, animals, and human beings change. And many think that means, because there is change in species, that means that evolution has occurred. Change is observable. But that is not the same thing as evolution from non-life to amoeba to man. It's just not the same thing. 
and none of the observable change has anything to do, and this is often misunderstood, has anything to do with creation. We can observe how material reality operates. We can observe how material reality functions. We can discern things about that. But watching how it operates and how it functions today, observable, a process that can be analyzed by science, gives us no information about its creation. Observing what material reality does, which can be studied scientifically, tells us nothing, and I stress that, nothing about how it came into existence. It tells us nothing about creation which is not a subject of scientific observation. Let me get at this in another way. Jesus healed people miraculously. Some others, apostles, healed people miraculously. Jesus healed quite a number of people miraculously. If you and I had been there in person and watched him do it, and there are plenty of people we read about in the Bible who did that. If we watched him heal, if we observed the healing he, that he performed, miraculous healing on said people, we could discover, if we had been there, and if we had then watched those healed people ongoing, we could then have discovered a whole lot about how they lived on after they were healed. But no matter what we observed of how they lived on after they were healed, we would know nothing about how Jesus healed them. Creation is simply not a repeatable, observable, scientific event that can be explained scientifically because natural law played no part in creation. 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 20. Timothy, Paul writes, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge or science which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. This is not saying that all of what science talks about is absurd or wrong, but there are those who profess certain things to be scientific and they are false. Beware of this, Timothy. Beware of false science or false knowledge. It is rife in the world. But some will say, couldn't God have used evolution in creation? No. I thought God could do anything he wanted to do. No. No. And if I have now declared heresy to you, you can string me up. God could have created and then used evolution after he created something, but he could not have used evolution to create anything. 
that would have required that there was some stuff that he caused to evolve. But there was no stuff before creation and everything God has revealed in his word after creation is inconsistent with evolution as a hypothesis for what God did. He just got to be patient with me. I can't explain all of this today's message. You will have to come back. There will be more. And I don't mean just the next one. I mean on through these opening chapters. You will have to be a little patient to get this correctly understood. But the conclusion I would draw right now today is either you believe or we believe what God has told us that he did or we don't believe it. And it's not complicated. Have you read Genesis 1 and 2 recently or even further? It's not complicated. A young child can grasp what God has told us in Genesis 1 and 2. Maybe not with full understanding, but they can grasp the basics of what God has said here. It is not complicated. But it is amazing how many Christians today say that Genesis 1 and 2 is difficult to believe. They say this because they think that science, modern science, contradicts it. So we have to find a way to understand it consistent with modern scientific ideas. And that's not easy. That's somewhat difficult. I would say impossible if you really understand the text. You have to find a way to make it consistent with modern scientific ideas. But again, I say to you, creation has nothing to do with science. This is not to disparage true science at all. You either believe creation or you don't. And if you are a Christian and you don't believe it, or you find the opening chapters of Genesis difficult to believe without an awful lot of twisting and turning and re interpreting then I want to ask you this where do you join the rest of us in believing God's word for what it just says do you do that at Genesis 3 do you do that at Genesis 4 do you do that at Genesis 6 do you do it at Genesis 12 do you do it at the book of Joshua do you do it in the book of Judges do you do it when you get to the prophets? Do you do it when you get to the New Testament? Where do you jump on board and simply believe what God has so clearly told us? And wherever it is, why do you do it there and why not at Genesis 1-1? And Genesis 1-1 and following... The opening of Genesis, if this is not true, if this is not accurate, if this is not reliable, or if this takes an enormous amount of difficult stretching, reinterpretation to make sense of it according to whatever other theory you've, you've decided is absolutely true, then in fact, 
If that's the way you feel about the opening account of creation, then I would suggest that being logically consistent, none of the rest of Scripture is accurate and true and reliable. Which was my problem before I became a believer. I read this and I thought, that's lunacy. Why pay attention to anything that follows? That's at least consistent non-belief. There are a lot of Christians that aren't consistent. We struggle with this part, but we want to believe everything else, or at least a whole bunch of everything. Well, at least the New Testament. If you're Andy Stanley, he said, Old Testament, bleh. it's the resurrection of Christ, it's the New Testament, it's the Old Testament, that, that old stuff, not important. We don't get to pick and choose what parts we believe. It is all either true or it is not. It is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple, clear words that a small child can understand. This isn't confusing. It is not ambiguous in the least. God created not from any pre-existing material and he created it all in six literal 24-hour days. Now, I don't have time to give you the explanation for that, but it's there. It's strong. Do we believe this or not? Do we admit this is true or not? Or do we deny it and reject it? For whatever reason might we deny it and reject it. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the words, worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What we believe about creation therefore must be believed by faith because no one was there but God. God made it all from what is invisible. He made it all from nothing. The term used for this is ne ex nihilo. God made everything that exists out of nothing from no pre-existing material. Now we'll talk about that too another time. There's a theory that says the existing material, the world's been around forever. We'll, have to, we'll talk about that. I'm just asserting to you up front, this is where I think we must stand if we take the text seriously. No pre-existing material, and if that's true, that eliminates evolution from any part of how God created. Now, there are non-believers, there are non-Christians, more and more of them as time passes, who will admit that there is no evidence. They'll, they'll say this. We don't think there's any evidence for the theory of evolution that really stands up. Non-believers. They're not believers in God. These are just non-believers. They think creation speaks of some sort of intelligent design, but they don't accept the God of the Bible. Now, let me be careful here. The intelligent design movement has some who do believe in God, and then there are others who don't. But there are non-believers who believe there must have been some sort of intelligent origin because evolution just doesn't work 
but they don't believe in the God of the Bible at all. And they don't accept the God of the Bible as the creator. Even though these non-believers know that evolution itself is a hopeless theory. They will not accept the God of Scripture because to accept the God of Scripture as creator means that one must also accept him as lawgiver and as judge. And this they, these non-believers, will not do. But to accept him as creator and judge means they will also not accept him as the redeemer who saves. They are, after all, non-believers. And no matter how much they, they may recognize evidence of intelligence or design in the universe, they are still under judgment. From the very beginning of my Christian life, I have used what commentators, biblical commentators, Christian ministries, Christian churches, I have used what these kinds of groups say about Genesis 1 and 2 as a helpful way to evaluate where they stand with God. Do they take Genesis 1 and 2, or really Genesis 1 through 11, seriously as literal historical truth, or don't they? If they don't, then I have lots of questions about what these ministries and commentators, etc., do with the rest of the Bible. How Christian ministries, organizations, theologians, and pastors take the opening of Genesis says a lot about their view of God's Word. And it is not whatever they think about the opening chapters. This is not just a minor detail where it doesn't really matter what you think about them if you believe the rest of God's Word. The only way to do that, in my view, is woefully inconsistently. John MacArthur points out, and as far as I'm concerned, he's one of the good guys on this, that there are, or there were when he said it, I don't know how long ago he actually said this, he said at the time there are 106 colleges in the Christian College Coalition. And he said only five of them would say, yes, we believe Genesis 1 and 2 literally. 101 would say no. Now, given how simple Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are, so simple that a child can understand it, if we don't take those literally, as they seem pretty obviously to be meant, and I'll give you more reasons for that, if we don't take that literally, how are we to know what Genesis 1 and 2 mean? And then how do we know that the rest of the Bible is true? If we know this isn't literally historically true. Or say we do. 
The Genesis account of creation is simple. It is plain. It is clear. It is uncomplicated. It is unmistakable. It is unambiguous. And yet I have found throughout my Christian life, so many Christians, many of my own seminary professors for whom I have great respect, who have felt that it is very hard to understand Genesis 1 and 2. And many have felt that most everything, many of my professors have felt that most everything else in the Bible is very clear. Well, it may not be very clear, but it's believable clear. I find this baffling because Genesis 1 and 2 is clearer and simpler than so many other parts of Scripture which they have no trouble believing. And almost all who have trouble believing this part, the beginning part, the opening couple chapters or first 11 chapters, have that trouble because they think that modern science has proved, proved things to the contrary. Eternal praise is offered to God for his work of creation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. And then in Revelation 10 and verse 6, God is the one who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. Nothing complicated about this. He didn't just create the very beginning stuff and then all those other things evolved. The earth, I mean the heaven and the things in it, the earth and the things in it, the sea and the things in it. Pretty comprehensive. In Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, an angel in mid-heaven preaches the eternal gospel. And the angel's message is, and I quote, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Right there is a problem for non-believing evolutionists. If God is, the God of the Bible is the creator, he has to be worshipped for the God that he is. He is to be feared because he is holy. And he is to be loved because he is gracious. The eternal gospel declares that there is a God who is a holy God. We have violated his law and we need to fear this God and worship him. The means by which we are able to do that, the means by which we can become saved and come to worship him is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It all ties back to the creation. Sinners are ever told to fear God and to worship him or die. And by that, it is not just meant die physically and leave this existence, but die 
in a permanent sense, in an ongoing existence. Believe in him or perish eternally. That's the Bible's message. And who is this God? The one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The denial of the creation account in Genesis is directly related to the sinful desire of man to deny and to escape and to avoid the coming sure and certain judgment of God. It is not an evidential denial, as so many think. It is a moral denial. It is not an unrighteous denial. Rather, it is an unrighteous denial of the reality of God, which all humanity knows the reality of God made evident to all of humanity in God's creation, a reality that is suppressed by all of humanity to try to get out from under our collective judgment for our personal sin which hangs over all of those who do not believe in Jesus. There are 165 passages in Genesis that are directly quoted or referred to in the New Testament the New Testament writers believed Genesis as it is given. 165 direct quotes or references and 35 more allusions to Genesis in the New Testament, all simple, clear, straightforward affirmation of the book of Genesis and the account of creation contained therein. Every New Testament writer refers to Genesis affirming its reality and truthfulness. According to Genesis 1-1, the infinite, personal, eternal God at a particular chosen point in eternity created all reality outside of himself, out of nothing. Instantaneously, miraculously. The Hebrew verb bara, Genesis 1-1, meaning created, has a more limited usage or meaning than our word today, created. Bara means to bring something into existence, specifically out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God's people have been confident of that reality throughout history. From Genesis 1-1 on, we do God an enormous dishonor if we deny him as that creator. To deny him as that creator is to say that the believers in the Old Testament and the believers in the New Testament were ignorant, they were backward, they were naive in affirming that God created everything in six days something that is affirmed again and again in Scripture. Look sometime at the account of God creating in Nehemiah 8. Have the people of God throughout the ages gotten this wrong? Or do they have it right and so many today are getting it wrong? 
to reject the Genesis account of creation is to reject the worship of believers throughout history and that leaves one really with having to reject the entire biblical account. It is no wonder, therefore, that the most attacked part of Scripture is Genesis 1 through 11, especially chapters 1 and 2. The creation account in Genesis is not secondary. It is not trivial. It is not a, well, it doesn't really matter exactly what you think about that as long as you believe the important things that come later. The creation account in Genesis is primary. It is critical to the main themes of divine revelation and the eternal purpose of God. It is a a priority. God did not create and hope that some meaningful plan would evolve by chance. He created with a very defined ultimate purpose that would be brought to its fulfillment. God orchestrates the array of circumstances, contingencies, changes, and revolutions from person to person, day to day, nation to nation, era to era, all toward a certain fixed goal to which everything is moving irrevocably. Jonathan Edwards said... Providence subordinates all changes in the affairs of mankind, and they are all subordinated to God's divine plan. Everything from creation to consummation is part of one great divine plan being worked out by God's great providence. There is not so much as one hostile molecule that operates outside of God's plan. History will end in the way that God wants it to end, which God himself will bring to pass. History started the way God said it started because he started it thusly. The universe is not eternal. It will come to an end, imploding and going out of existence. But that will only happen when God's scheme for this universe is complete and God has no further use for it. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. He will ultimately make a new heavens and a new earth. Why did God create? This is often thought to be something we we just don't know. We have no idea, no way of knowing. Why did God create? Well, Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created by and for Christ according to God's plan of redeeming a people for himself. That's why. The grand design is gathering a redeemed people into eternal glory to worship God forever and ever. All of God's works of creation and providence and consummation are all associated with the work of redemption or salvation. That's what it's always been all about. Salvation is not incidental. It is why the universe exists and was created by God. 
He didn't just create to sort of watch the universe and be amused. He created the universe that he might bring about a redeemed humanity to exist with him in his presence forever. Why did God create? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, he writes, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden and in God who created all things. So that the manifold, he created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, much less the earthly. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which is carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why he created he created to redeem, to display his glory to the holy angels. In creation is the very beginning of the purposes of God in redemption. And then I'd ask you to consider 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the creation of light, Paul saw a picture of salvation. God creating light in darkness, Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3, by his sovereign instantaneous power is a picture of what God does in the darkness of a sinner's heart. The convoluted concept of evolution introduced into Genesis tampers with the sovereign, divine, instantaneous miracle of God who gave light to a dark universe as parallel to his giving light in an instant to a dark heart. This is the picture. This is the purpose in God's creating. We must not, on the basis of alleged modern conclusions, tamper with it. Believe it as God has revealed it in Genesis 1. So what do you think and what do you believe about Genesis? About Genesis 1 through 11. About Genesis 1 and 2. What you believe and think about them determines a great deal about what you think in the rest of Scripture. What you believe in Genesis says a lot about what you believe about God. It is the foundation without which the whole structure of reality falls apart in man's fictitious imaginings and prideful disbelief. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, simple and clear. Give us the courage not only to believe it, but to defend it and stand up for it in these modern crazy times. 
And Lord, help us as we pursue this ongoing in message after message to understand and see and to apply for there are so many applications appropriately. There are things that I have referred to this morning that I haven't given enough explanation for. Give us that in time as we move forward, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as we come to understand it, I pray we believe it and defend it and hold it up because the truth, when recognized here, will lead people to want to know more about you and want to know more about this Jesus whom you sent. And that was the whole point you're creating to begin with. So guide us in these things, be with us in these things, give us voice in these things in you through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. There are a lot of things which we surprisingly today find it hard to believe and affirm in our modern culture. This has been one hard to believe and affirm seriously for a long time in our modern culture. I encourage you to do so. It is defendable. It is believable. It is the truth of God. And it makes a huge difference. I hope we will begin to see that spelled out as we move on. So in that, may you be strengthened in your faith and in your witness, and may you depart to carry those tasks out faithfully to your Lord to glorify his name in all things. Amen.